She was nicknamed Popeye because she stood out for all the wrong reasons. I, Popeye the sailor man. I, I am what I am. am. She took it in her stride. She made a joke about it. And she said, uh, yeah, I'm Popeye the Great, you know. But she didn't feel good about that. She said she died a thousand deaths in those years. At almost six feet tall, with a deep, gravelly voice, Helen Stevens starts Fulton High School in 1931. And she just doesn't fit in. The comparison to a chain-smoking sailor with bulging forearms certainly doesn't help. Helen is destined for something bigger, though, and by the time she graduates, she'll become a hometown hero. Before we get there, let's start at the beginning. Helen is born in the town of Fulton right before World War I ends. It's a time of economic insecurity. She um, grew up on a farm, a dirt-poor farm. Her father was a hard-working man, and uh, her mother doted on her, as did her grandparents. That's Sharon Kinney Hansen. She wrote the biography on Helen, spending years interviewing her and digging through her personal records. She'll be our guide. What was Helen like as a kid, and what did she do for fun? Well, she was very rambunctious. She played all the, the games that the boys played, and it was roughhousing with them a lot in school. And she would run alongside her cousin's horse. You know, he would ride the horse to school, and she would run alongside with him and jump the gullies. And so she was fast moving and running and romping and stomping around the house. What was she like when she got to high school? She was a very tall, lanky, athletic girl, very bright, intelligent girl, did well in school. But um, she, she was country also, and there were the city girls and the city boys. So before she became recognized as a, a girl of talent, athletic talent, she was uh, among the uh, unpopular group. And uh, her mother made her clothes for her. I mean, that's for any of us in getting adolescents. Yeah. 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 To be not among the popular and to be shunned and to be laughed at and to be called nicknames. It sounds like she adopted this sense of humor to kind of oh. deal with it. <laughs> yes, she did. She she became in high school the uh, the the joke editor for the high school newspaper. Helen is funny. And that makes high school a bit more bearable. So she's getting by. Around this time, Coach Moore, the high school boys' athletic coach, asks Helen to run a 50-yard dash. Here's Sharon describing that moment in Helen's biography. As he watched the 15-year-old move toward the starting line, he saw a shy, somber-faced kid. Her head slunk down so that her neck was barely visible. Her eyes steeled straight ahead. She wore baggy pantaloons, the gym suit her mother made, and dirty sneakers. She did no thing about running form. Left foot, right foot. Helen pushes herself faster, faster, faster. Said Helen, I just ran. And when I finished, Coach kind of looked at his watch. Coach Moore looked at his watch puzzled and saw 5.8 seconds. That's what the stopwatch says, but that couldn't be right, could it? In her scuffed-up sneakers and homemade clothes, Helen just tied the world record. The coach is probably floored. Yes. And wants her to train. Yes. What's the reaction from the people in the community? Well, the boys had hoped that <laughs> <The boys. laughs> she hadn't done so well because 
<laughs> That's a pretty incredible speed, and, and they weren't too pleased about it. Helen starts down the path toward fame. Her face will soon be splashed across newspapers and magazines. A legend. But the mounting celebrity brings scrutiny and condemnation. Throughout it all, Helen presents herself as confident, funny, and unapologetic. But she's not completely herself, at least publicly. It's the 1930s, and there are some things you just don't talk about. Welcome to Show Me the State, the program where we explore the strange, misunderstood stories of Missouri's past and try to figure out what really happened, why did it happen, and how has that shaped the state today? I'm Christopher Husted. The date is September 29th, 1984. This is Helen Stevens speaking. One of the few audio recordings left of Helen Stevens is an interview she did with the St. Louis Kaplan Feldman Holocaust Museum. Helen talks about Coach Moore and the day she tied the world record. He planted a seed, let's say, in my mind, and his too. Moore knows he has some real talent on his hands. Helen could be a champion. I mean, she just needs to win a real race with stakes. Coach Moore sets his sights on the upcoming meet in St. Louis. Some of the biggest names in girls' track are going to be there. There's just one tiny hiccup. When the school superintendent hears about Helen competing, he is not happy. A Fulton girl running in a track race? What would people say? Remember what some people thought about Helen because she was an athletic girl. She was atypical. She wasn't attractive. She was breaking a norm. And the superintendent wasn't happy about that idea getting out. He just felt that probably women had no place in sports. And furthermore, uh, we were going to make fools of ourselves and bring disgrace on the school. And so Coach Moore pressed him and said that he would pay the fee if only you would give permission, he said to the superintendent. And he finally did. And the superintendent said, go come back, get it over with, and I want to hear any more about it. The day of the meet arrives, and everyone's eyes are on the one and only Stella Walsh, a.k.a. the Polish Flyer. She's fast. I'm talking Olympic gold medalist fast. She's the reigning champ. It's Groucho Marx in You Bet Your Life, the comedy quiz series produced and transcribed from Hollywood. Stella Walsh, eh? One of the greatest women athletes of our time. It's an honor to have you here, Stella. Stella, where are you from? Well, I come from a little village in Poland called Wierzbierzchownia. And your name is Stella Walsh? That isn't a Polish well, name. Well, uh, my name really is Stanisława Walaszewiczowna. Uh-huh. That's good with a heavy cream sauce, isn't it? <laughs> what are some of the titles you hold? Forty United States Championships. 22 uh, Polish national titles. Of course, I had the Olympic title and a number of world titles. To say that Helen Stevens is an underdog would be an understatement. She isn't even a serious contender. She had no track uniform, no track shoes of her own. Helen borrows a pair of shoes, pushes past her feelings of insecurity, and focuses on the things she can control, 
running. The gun goes off. Helen made a good takeoff. She took the lead, broadened it. Don't trip. Left foot, right foot, breathe, breathe. She pushes herself faster, faster, faster. Helen takes the lead. The crowd is on the edge of their seats. Who is this hayseed, and how is she keeping up with an Olympic gold medalist? Left foot, right foot, kick, kick, knees up. Helen broadens her lead. The spectators are going crazy. Helen propels through the finish line in first place. And victory was hers. Again, repeating her 6.6 times, some say a full four feet ahead of second placer, Stella Walsh. A St. Louis Post-Dispatch Cub reporter screamed in her face, Do you know what you've just done? Helen, panting for breath, pulled her thoughts together. I think I won, she drawled in her Midwestern tongue. The reporter exclaims, You just outran Stella Walsh. Who, said Helen, grinning broadly, tossing a quizzical look. Stella who? Oh, yes. Helen is being cheeky. Stella wasn't happy. She had just been beaten by this nobody who had the audacity to joke that she didn't know the Stella Walsh, the Polish flyer. Well, of course, that made a story like I said, who's Stella Walsh, and I burned Stella up, but she never did forgive me. Stella called the race a fluke. In a rematch, Stella would surely beat Helen, but that's a year down the road. What was the response like when she came home from St. Louis after this major win? Oh, big parade. It was a Helen Stevens Day. School was canceled. The uh, student assembly was just, just, all the kids were just crazy, ecstatic, you know. They were, they were making prophecies in the school newspaper that she was going to become an Olympic star and so they had to cancel school, and superintendent had to eat crow. I learned early on that uh, everyone likes a winner. It's kind of a big deal beating an Olympic medalist. And that race sets Helen straight on the path toward trying to win a medal for herself. Did she ever doubt herself leading to the Olympics? I don't think so. <laughs> From my, when, I, I, when I interviewed her many, many, many times, I don't think she was the type of person who doubted herself. This time, the town rallies behind her and helps her raise the $500 she needs to pay her way to the 1936 Berlin Olympics. With the departure of the United States Olympic squad for Berlin, this small town farm girl boards the SS Manhattan on July 15, 1936 with the rest of her U.S. Olympic teammates. The 400 boys and girls who will march into the stadium on August 1st behind the Stars and Stripes will constitute the finest team we have ever sent abroad. But the competition will be keener than ever before. Suppose we pass in review a few of the stars on whom Uncle Sam will depend. A flash of the ladies. At Brown Stadium, Providence, Rhode Island, Miss Helen Stevens, a farm girl, steals the show and following her discus and shot-putting triumphs with a blazing world mark in a 100-meter dash. With the sports-loving public of America behind them, our athletes cannot fail. The games open on August 1st in Germany. The world turns its eyes and ears to the Olympics, not unlike today. But here's where we should pause and acknowledge a few things about the 1936 Olympics. It's held in Nazi Germany. By this time, Hitler has already built and opened the Dachau concentration camp. The Gestapo have been around for a few years. 
Nazis have started the forced sterilization of people in mental hospitals. The Nuremberg Laws, which stripped Jews of German citizenship, are in effect. There was a feeling of fear, impending disaster, I might say. I, I, I got that impression. I even felt that way. The same year as the Olympics, Nazis create an office for combating homosexuality and abortions. Hitler is using this international stage as a way to legitimize his anti-Semitic one-party dictatorship. And he's also trying to prove to the world that the Aryan race is superior. Helen is white and athletic. Helen fits this mold for what Hitler thinks an athlete should look like. Well, except for one key thing, but I'm getting ahead of myself. It's a few days before the race, and Helen is focused on showing the world that her race against Stella wasn't a fluke. She was going to stomp Stella again. That's how she felt. She was determined. This time, Helen isn't the underdog. She's been busy talking smack, and she has a reputation to uphold. She's running for her country, for Fulton, for Helen the gangly teenager. But just as the date of the race is nearing, an athlete's nightmare befalls her. Helen feels a fierce pain in her shin, and it threatens her dreams. It's piercing. She has shin splints. The first time she saw Stella in Berlin was when they both went to the, the uh, health center to get the uh, treatments that they needed for their conditions. They just looked at each other. In the same way that she would not allow herself to respond to the guy named her Popeye, she wasn't going to let anybody know that her shin splints were bothering her. And of course, this is what most athletes do anyway. Bravado, you know. Helen heads to the 100-meter dash, clearly in less than peak condition. She already made it through the preliminary and semifinal round, fortunately. In both races, her time was better than Stella's, but Helen worries that Stella was holding back, deciding to save her strength for the final race. It was a dreary August day, cold with a light drizzle. A year after beating Stella in St. Louis, it was Helen's chance to prove her win wasn't a fluke, to beat the Polish flyer and nab an Olympic medal, maybe even gold. A crowd of 100,000 watch in anticipation. When the official's gun went off, Helen shot from the mark like a kid's bottle rocket, leaving behind nothing but the awed expressions of onlookers and strained and smoky configurations of her would-be contenders. In the ladies' 100-meter final, a glimpse of America's Helen Stevens, who developed her speed chasing rabbits on a Missouri farm. She quickly passed Emmy Albus. Some said her figure in white silk running suit blurred in motion. She sped past Marie Dollinger and Kata Kraus. She looked like a human locomotive with her arms and legs pumping like pistons. She ran faster, her long legs propelling her past Stella. One hundred thousand voices cheered, hands clapped like lightning, feet pounded seats with thunderous applause when Helen Stevens snapped the ribbon. And as before, and embarrassingly so for Stella, trailing some two meters behind Helen, the Polish flyer 
ran a sad, distant second. And here you see her winging her way to a new universal mark of 11 and 5 tenths seconds. But that day, in her 36th diary, modestly, she but sketched her victory. And this, these are her words. Then in the 100 meter, I won the Olympic crown. Yes, the applause was grand, the thrill of seeing the American flag raised for me, and the crowning of the victors was marvelous. That's incredible. That's so special. She said her knees were shaky when she was on this podium. Yeah, just just shaking. Helen won an Olympic gold medal. She would go on to anchor the women's track relay team, winning another gold medal for Team USA. She goes global as people want to know who this Fulton Flash is. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you'll have the pleasure of hearing Helen Stevens. Hello, everybody, and goodbye. (laughs) When Hitler greets the gold medalist with a Nazi salute, Helen does not return it. Hitler then proceeds to grope her. I was kind of shocked, you know, at a leader doing that, you know. That brief interaction with Hitler is mentioned in just about every article of Helen's life, which is a shame because there's a lot more to Helen's story. And what happens next when Helen gets back to Missouri doesn't receive as much attention. She's coming back a hometown hero, an Olympic gold medalist. But that all-American image is about to be tarnished as she's sent into a spiral of notoriety. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Show Me the State podcast on KBIA 91.3 FM. Find more episodes on kbia.org or on any of your podcast apps. Back to the show. For Helen Stevens, the rumors started almost as soon as she won the Olympic gold medal. Polish newspapers ran articles accusing Helen of being a man. European reporters questioned Helen. Was she a woman? Helen directed them to the Olympic Committee, which confirmed that yes, Helen was indeed a woman. But that didn't settle the matter. A few months later, the American magazine called Look published a spread which included a photo of Helen running mid-stride. It was not flattering. There was a grimace on her face, she was blinking, and her muscles were clenched. The headline, what do you think? Is this a man or a woman? And Helen was not your typical glamour gal in the 40s, you know, which was what was expected. I mean, I can't imagine an 18-year-old having to deal with that Hmm. after having brought fame and glory. You know, the rug literally pulled out from under her. Hmm. Uh, The president of the school brought her into his office and said essentially what the superintendent was afraid of. You know, you've embarrassed us. Embarrassed the college right after she won two Olympic medals. But the president wasn't just admonishing Helen for a salacious magazine spread. He was hearing rumors about Helen's late-night visitors, women. Which brings us to the State Historical Society of Missouri. I'm Heather Richmond. I'm an archivist at the State Historical Society of Missouri. um, And we're here in the archival processing area where I work. We're here to learn more about this part of Helen one she didn't publicly talk about for decades. Archived here, along with Helen's newspaper clippings and photographs, are these incredibly personal letters she got from her girlfriends. They're love letters sent to Helen around the same time as the Olympics, pages upon pages, 
typed, scrawled out on notebook pages and pencil, small notes and winding missives proclaiming love, sharing mundane details about life, chiding Helen for not writing back quickly enough. There's even a lipstick kiss, a little faded, but still red. It was definitely a secret in her professional life. She was very much in the closet publicly. Which I imagine back then. Yeah, everybody was, you know. So so how do these letters, the earlier letters, let's say, um, compare historically to other love letters that we might come across of someone like Helen? In a lot of ways, I think they they are typical in that, um, you know, a lot of the letters express some of her girlfriends are distraught about the fact that they can't live a traditional life together. On the other hand, it's really interesting when you read the letters, they're not ashamed. You know, there's no, um, the angst is, is about the limitations that society is imposing on them and their relationship. It's not about the relationship itself. You know, aside from just typical kind of schoolgirl Oh, do you love me? I love you so much. I hope you're not dating anyone else. Please tell me you're not dating anyone else because I love you so much. I mean, you know, that's the angst. It's not like, oh, we did something wrong. Like I never, I haven't read in any of these letters that anybody thought they did anything wrong. Um, So I found that interesting that that there wasn't the shame that people might think. It's just your traditional insecurity that you have as a teenager. Oh, yeah. They're just very typical teenage love letters. Very typical. Very (laughs) young-seeming. Culturally at the time, can you just contextualize, like, what that might be like? Yeah. Well, so the 30s in some ways were, like, this weird transitional time um, for the gay community. Like in like before that, it wasn't commonly known what homosexuality was, you know, and for girls especially, you could go to a girls college and it was pretty common to have these kind of romantic friendships where they'd bring each other flowers and hold hands and nobody really thought anything of it. You know, they were just good friends. And so, you know, you could have a lesbian relationship in that context and not necessarily be noticed. But by the 30s, there was more homophobia in the air and more fear of, is that relationship with your daughter's best friend really pure? Is is there a problem happening here? That brings us back to that awful magazine spread, Helen's late night visitors, and the meeting with her college's president. Here's Sharon reading from her book about that meeting. President uh, of William Woods, Dr. Harmon, said to Helen, sit down, Miss Stevens. He pointed to a leather chair near his desk. Heavy brown and green brocade curtains locked out the gray overcast light. He wasted no time on cordiality. Of course, you know why I've asked you here. But she didn't. At least she wasn't sure. We disapprove, he proceeded, of the distasteful publicity that one of our girls has brought upon us. He paused to let the silence work for him. He's furious. On top of all this, he saw what he considered a scandalous photo of Helen over break in New York holding a cocktail shaker. You have embarrassed us. Now he targeted her directly. That a William Woods girl should be publicized in a cocktail lounge of all places, well... Celebrated though you may be, Miss Stevens, in some circles, with your foot race to fame, he said, 
and Helen fixed on those last words. Word has also come to us that you have had visitors in your room long past curfew. And we know that you have broken other rules, visiting past curfew yourself in an, another dorm other than your own. What do you have to say for yourself? Helen starts to answer, but... There can be no explanation for your behavior. We have revoked your scholarship. There will be no appeal of your decision. Defeated, Helen's chin dropped to her chest. You may go now, he said, pointing. She nodded acceptance. Dismissed without the opportunity for self-defense, she turned to the door. Mm. That's how she explained it. Right. Wow. That's, I mean, that's just another gut punch. Yeah. <laughs> you should be celebrated. 18. I keep thinking she's only 18. She finds a room in town and gets a job to make up for that lost scholarship. Helen sues Look Magazine and wins more than $5,000, which was big money back then. But at what cost? She moves to St. Louis, where she eventually gets a job at the Defense Mapping Agency Aerospace Center and meets Mabel, the love of her life. Mabel came into Helen's life with her own struggles. Uh, Mabel was her uh, boss at one of her first government jobs. And unfortunately, Mabel was in a bad marriage, was abused physically, came to work one day, and Helen said, you can't go home. Just come home with me. Get yourself you know, settled down and figure out what move you need to make next. And the old saying was that Helen brought Mabel home and, and Mabel stayed. So they had a very wonderful life together. That's Suzanne Corbett, a close family friend of Helen's. I first met Helen when I was, oh, I guess maybe about 10 years old or so. She was one of my mother's best friends. Suzanne says as she got older, Helen and her became closer. She became more of a mentor to me instead of my mother's friend, particularly after my mother passed away. She sort of became that uh, surrogate mother, you know, the other mothers that we all have. Helen would pass on advice from lessons she learned in her own life, like... Don't give up. Keep on keeping on. It's okay to lose the race. It's okay to fail. But to be able to pick yourself up, move on, figure out what went wrong, and go forward. I don't think we have a lot of that today. Helen is probably most known for her two Olympic golds, but she also was the first woman to run a semi-professional basketball team and later in life, she was a fierce competitor in the senior Olympic Games. The place and time had its restrictions. And for her to be able to succeed what she did within those boundaries is amazing. It wasn't until towards the end of her life where she was really getting the recognition, I think, that she so richly deserved with, with being elected to the National Women's Hall of Fame and countless sports Hall of Fames. Helen Stevens, the Fulton Flash, died from a stroke in 1994. Her world record of 11.5 seconds for the 100-meter event was broken in her lifetime, but her legacy lives on. The small-town farm girl won two gold medals at a time when women weren't encouraged to play sports. When she wasn't running, she was busy exchanging love letters with her girlfriend. It wouldn't be until 1988, six years before her death, that the first openly gay athlete from America competed in the Olympics. Helen was a trailblazer, but in interviews, she doesn't boast about that. Have you ever wondered as to what it is that 
gave you the ability to be that fast a runner? I don't know. Why is anybody fast? They're faster than I am now. Mm. Many of them. One piece of wisdom Helen received from another athlete seems to have stuck with her, and is maybe why Helen preferred to look forward instead of ruminating on her own track records and legacy. She says, you and I both can just remember that we had our time and our day and our moment. And now it's time for someone else. Show Me the State is produced at KBIA at the Missouri School of Journalism. Aviva Okasen-Haberman produced this episode. The supervising producer and reporter is me, Christopher Husted. Our managing editor is Ryan Famuliner. Our theme music was created by Columbia band Loose Loose. Special thanks to Sharon Kenny Hansen. Her book is called The Life of Helen Stevens, The Fulton Flash. Thank you to the St. Louis Kaplan Feldman Holocaust Museum for sharing Helen's interview with us. Also, thank you to the State Historical Society for digging up Helen's letters, journals, and scrapbooks for us to look through. Truly, Helen's story is so much more than we were able to cover in this episode. She accomplished amazing things. Special thanks to the Reynolds Journalism Institute and to the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy.